Our second reading of Scripture comes to us from the book of the Acts of the Apostles. We'll be reading in chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. Listen for God's word to you. Soon the news reached the apostles and the other believers in Judea that the Gentiles had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticized him. He entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Then Peter told them exactly what had happened. I was in the town of Joppa, he said, and while I was praying, I went into a trance and saw a vision. Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. When I looked inside the sheet, I saw all sorts of tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds, and I heard a voice say, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, I replied, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice from heaven spoke again, Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back up to heaven. Just then three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying. The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers here accompanied me, and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us. He told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home and told him, Send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. As I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift as he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? When the others heard this, they stopped objecting and began praising God. They said, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles the privilege of repenting of their sins and receiving eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe the story sounds familiar, um, uh, and if it does, uh, you might have been here on Easter, because we heard this story pretty much um, from the beginning that, that Peter just repeats. So um, if you were here on Easter and you'd like to go back and hear that, you can listen online. But again, Peter pretty much repeats it for us here. We get the gist, at least, from what Peter says um, to us today. And um, that that should probably tell us that it's worth paying attention to, because because it's difficult. I mean, you know, you saw the size of the of the passage we just looked at, and imagine if you had to write it out. Um, you know, that's there's a reason you would you would have to, to write it out. Today it's cut and paste. We don't have any real, you know, one sentence or one paragraph. It's all the same. But back in the olden days, when you had to write it out and you had to get it right, um, it was it had to be more important for you to do that. And not only that, but but in the in the first century, everything. All the materials everybody used for anything were artisanal materials, and they were priced accordingly. So if you're going to spin that amount of parchment or that amount of, of uh, papyrus to write down a story, you need to be really confident that it's worth repeating. So the very fact that Peter repeats it 
tells us there's something important going on, and there is something important going on, because because Peter has done something that people had been hoping for, but not really sure how to do it. Because because what had happened is Jesus, when he ascended to heaven, he told his disciples, "You're going to be my witnesses, not just here in Jerusalem, but throughout all of Judea and into Samaria and as far as the ends of the earth." So Peter has 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 done something, or God has done something through Peter that people have been waiting for and not really sure how to do. So it's an important moment that the, the kind of logjam that's been going on for the last several years has been broken, and there's been a huge inroad into the Gentile community. So, so that's what's going on. So we read about this. It says, soon the news reached the apostles and the believers in Judea that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. But this this will only be familiar to church people if you if you grew up in a church that says when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem the Jewish believers criticized him. Now the reason for that is not just because people in churches tend to be critical, but but in particular um, the word here Jewish believers they were all Jewish believers. That's the whole problem is there were no Gentile believers. Everybody was a Jewish believer. So what what do they mean there? It means not just people who were Jews and believers in Jesus, but people who believed in Judaism. And they criticized Jesus. And so what did they say? They said, you entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them. You entered the home of Gentiles. You even ate with them. This is not a theological objection. This is not theology that's at work here. This is disgust. And what I want to do today is talk about the relationship between disgust and religion. Because it's so easy for us to confuse the two. I think this is as big of a problem today as it was in the first century. That there is a relationship between disgust and religion. But they are not the same thing. And so that's what I want to look at. The, the risk is that we will say, what disgusts me disgusts God. But that's not what's going on in our passage. So I want to look at this. And I want to begin by just talking quickly about disgust. One of the things about disgust is we know it's a universal. Every human has disgust. We actually know where it is in your brain. We know that there's a part of your brain called the insula. And when it's active, people are disgusted. And people who don't have that part of the brain, if they've had a lesion or something... They don't get disgusted. So, so we know that this is a problem. And scientists tell us that this is something that, that developed long ago in our ancestry uh, because we became omnivores. We could pretty much eat anything, like rats and cockroaches. Uh, humans can pretty much eat whatever they want to, but the problem is some of it will kill you. And that's the dilemma, is if you, if you eat anything, if you're kind of a, a generalist, then you can, you can pick things that are in season or out of season. You can eat animals and so forth. You have the, the freedom to pick anything you want. But if you pick the wrong thing, then too bad, it may kill you. So, so we have a dilemma. We're able to, to, uh, to afford these big expensive brains of ours. But on the other hand, anything you eat may kill you. So, so how do you do that? This is the, what's, what, um, uh, Paul Rosen has called the uh, omnivore's dilemma, and that became the title of a book later on. So the omnivore's dilemma is how do you know what to eat, given that you can eat anything? You know, cows don't have this problem. Cows know you eat grass or you know corn or whatever, right? But but omnivores have a problem. I can eat anything, but what should I eat? And um, so we we developed the disgust, the, the sense of disgust as as what what people have called our behavioral immune system. 
And the idea there is we've got immune systems, but then there is on top of that a, a behavioral layer. So, for example, at the school next door, there's a sign in the door. And the reason is some people there have a behavior, have an immune system that goes haywire when they eat a peanut. And when they eat the peanut, the whole, the whole immune system goes crazy and they go into shock or whatever happens when you eat a peanut. And so, so they have an immune system that's supposed to protect them from peanuts, but it's not working properly. So what they do is they have a behavioral immune system, which is the sign in the door that says, please no peanuts, because some of the people have this, this problem. So there's the immune system, but then there is on top of that a behavioral immune system. And people have a behavioral immune system that's one of the most interesting ones in, in all, among all the different animals. So um, uh, uh, every animal has the ability to learn not to taste things that are bad. So, for example, if you take if you take a rat, it may take 20 times to learn how to go through a little maze, you know, right, left, right, right? And it may take 20 tries to learn that there's cheese at the far end or whatever. But if you if you give a rat a new flavor of food and then you make it sick, then that rat will be sick. It will never forget that new food, and it will always avoid it. So it's kind of cool that they can learn this, that even though they, they're not very quick learners about a lot of stuff, they do learn bad things. And humans are the same way. We learn that we learn bad things too, but humans have a unique ability. We can communicate it to other humans, and the way we do that, you already know. You do it um, reflexively. It's this. Some of some of you remember where Mr. Yuck came from. Back in the 1970s, or really from from a long ago, the symbol for something poisonous. If you had drain cleaner in your kitchen or something like that then you put a little skull and crossbones on it. And the problem then is that kids came along, kids too small to read and didn't know what the word poison meant. They came along and they said, oh, cool, pirates, yo-ho-ho in a bottle of rum. And then they drank the, the, the drain cleaner. And so they said, you know what, this skull and crossbone thing is not working. So they swapped out the skull and crossbones with Mr. Yuck. And the reason is because kids as young as, as, as crawling age recognize that face. Everybody recognizes the Mr. Yuck face. It's the face we all make when we eat something that's gross. So we all have disgust. It's a, it's a universal, we all recognize it when other people are disgusted. But the question is still, how does that relate to religion? And uh, so, so I, I want to I explain, but to do that I'm going to have to talk about something disgusting. And so I'm thinking, how can I talk about something disgusting that's not going to disgust my congregation? So, so this is kind of, you know, not the omnivore's dilemma, this is a pastor's dilemma. So I thought, what's something that's harmless and cute and everybody thinks is fun? And I thought, of course, monsters. So even little kids go to movies about Hotel Transylvania, right? There's three of them now, and probably working on number four because they keep making money. But I want to talk about one of those monsters in particular, the one in the corner. His name is Frank. He's a friend of the of the innkeeper there. And uh, we all know who he is, right? He's that cute and cuddly Frankenstein monster, right? Um, he appears in cereal boxes. So here he is, Frankenberry uh, monster marshmallows. So, so what could be less disgusting than a monster, right? Uh, back in the 60s, uh, Fred Gwynn was, uh, was, uh, the immortal Herman Munster. So, um, so we know, we know these things are basically harmless. But in the 1930s, we hadn't learned all these things and we realized Frankenstein is actually pretty creepy. Frankenstein is, is a mess because he's reanimating the dead. And that's, Kind of disgusting. And, and not only that, but where does he get the dead? Well, he and his trusty sidekick Igor go out to graveyards and they rob graves. And we say, boy, that's, that's not cereal box friendly anymore, right? That's, that's, that's gross. That's disgusting. And in fact, we might even go so far as to say, that's unholy. That's profane. And that's the point. There is this 
this spectrum that we define between the things that are that are profane or or worldly, the things that down below, and the things that are above, the holy things. And so we we understand that there's this spectrum. And what we do is we say that things that are disgusting belong to the first category, the the unholy things. And we say that things that are holy are at the other end of that spectrum. There's a, a, a study called Moral Foundations Theory, and one of the pioneers of it, Jonathan Haidt, he calls this the sanctity degradation spectrum. And he says that, that rarefied things, uh, sanctified things are, are up high. They are the things of God, and the worldly things are the degraded things, the disgusting things. And that's what's going on in our story. That's why the Jewish believers say, you ate with them. Because to eat was not just to, you know, have some pork or whatever it was that, that disgusted them. It was to eat something disgusting, and to eat something disgusting meant to eat something that was unholy. So they had this idea that the things that disgusted them, the people that disgusted them, were unholy. And that's their objection. So Peter tells them exactly what's happening. He says, let me tell you about disgust. I, I cannot begin to tell you how disgusting this whole thing was. Because it began with a vision. This sheet came down from heaven. And on this sheet were everything you would never want to eat. You know, just fill in the blanks yourself. The creepy crawlies, everything you can imagine that you don't want to eat is on this sheet. And it's all forbidden. And I have never touched it in my life. And then I hear a voice tell me, Peter, get up and eat. And I said, no way. And the voice came back and the voice said, the voice said, death way. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. He said, this happened not once, not twice. This happened three times. And then finally, that sheet and all those disgusting things on it was lifted back up into heaven. And as I'm still kind of trying to get my stomach together, the doorbell rings. And three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying. And the Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not worry that they were Gentiles. And I took six brothers with me. They can, you know, talk to them. They know that this happened. I wasn't doing this on the sly or in secret. But yes, I did. I entered their home of the man who had sent for us. And he told us how an angel had been in his home. An angel of God had been in his home. Had appeared to him and said, Send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. And when you do, he will tell you how everyone in your household will be saved. So he said, when, when Peter got there, he said, so tell me, how can I be saved? And Peter says, as I began to answer him, as I began to speak, he asked me, how can we be saved? And as I started to talk, the Holy Spirit fell on him, just as he fell on us at the beginning, back at Pentecost. And then I thought of the words, the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then he asked this question. He says, since God gave the Gentiles the same gift 
that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I to stand in God's way? See, Peter is aware of this probably more than most people. If you think about the circumstances that God has arranged here, where was he invited up to Caesarea from? From Joppa. So Joppa, Joppa, where have I heard Joppa before? Joppa is the port that Jonah took the wrong turn in. And he's saying, what am I going to be? And then he thinks, oh yeah, what's my name? You know, everybody calls me Peter, but my mom calls me Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus did too once. He said, Simon, son of Jonah, blessed are you. So what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to be Jonah? Or am I supposed to be obedient? That's the question that Peter says. What choice did I have? You would have done the same thing if you were in that house and you saw that vision and then the doorbell rang. So what should I have done? Should I stand in front of God? And then, you know, the good news here is the the writer of this New Testament document we call Acts tells us a miracle happened. Because he says, when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and they began praising God. We are having So when the others heard this, they stopped objecting and they began praising God. They basically said, I had no idea how strong a stomach God has. See, I thought God's pretty temperamental and you had to be careful because you might disgust him. And I realized God's got a strong stomach and I realized I'm the one who has to get a tough stomach because things that disgust me don't disgust God. He says, we can see that God has also given the Gentiles, the Gentiles, the Gentiles, the privilege of repenting of their sin and receiving eternal life. So, the question for us is, what disgusts you? Or maybe a better question is, who disgusts you? Because a, a serious question you should ask yourself is, where is that coming from? Is it is it the person who disgusts you, or is it something they do, or something they eat, or the kind of music they listen to, or the substances they take into their body, or the way they express their sexuality. What is it that really disgusts you? Because disgust is a universal. People are disgusted. The question is, are we disgusted by other people? Because I was thinking about this one of the places my, my mind turned is politics. I've wondered, why have our politics gotten so polarized over the last couple of decades? And I think part of it is that we naturally think of politics in terms of disgusting things. How many times have you seen new sorts of words applied to politicians? Slimy, sleazy, rotten, corrupt, ghastly, foul, despicable, revolting, nasty, awful... These are not the words of policy disputes. These are the words of disgust. And so maybe the reason that our politics have gotten so polarized is we've started saying, you know what, I disagree with the way that Fox News conducts its its understanding of journalism. We say, no, those people are rotten, sleazy swine bags. Or we say it about CNN. We say, we say, I find it despicable what they did with that guy in the in the segment the other day. So we have transferred our disgust at some particular action or behavior or thing to people and institutions. And so I do wonder about that. I was trying to think of another example because one's never enough. I thought about vaping. You know, 
I, I don't know how many people use tobacco products uh, in here, but um, but I have observed a lot of people who are anti-smokers are also anti-vaxxers, uh, anti-vaxxers, anti-vapers. And the reason about this, the reason I wondered about this is because there's no question vaping is less harmful. It, there's just, you know, the science is settled on that, that it's far less um, uh, harmful. It's still harmful. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's, it's a bad thing to do, children. But, um, but it's far less damaging than smoking. But public policy is increasingly treating the two as identical. Instead of saying it would be a good thing if we could help people get away from one to the other, that would actually be good for public health. Instead, we say they're both icky. And it creeps me out when I see people do that thing. And because a majority of people in our country don't smoke, we tend to treat the two as equal. And I think this is another place where our disgust is transferring out of a particular thing and onto particular people. But I don't know. What you, you, you know better than I do what it is to discuss you. And I would ask you, think to yourself what those things are. Typically, they have to do with food, and they have to do with the expression of sexuality. But there's all kinds of other things that, that people are discussed by. And ask yourself, people who do that, is God disgusted by that? Is God disgusted by them? Because what Peter found out is that when he entered the home, of somebody that he found disgusting. God had already been there. God was there, right there, waiting for him to finally get through the speech so he could fall on them in the form of his Holy Spirit. The angel had been there days ago. God was already there. So, I would ask the question, what are you disgusted by? And will you go where God calls you? Because I think God is already in that person's home, that God is already in that person's life. And if he invites you there, he's inviting you, like Peter, to introduce him to the people that you thought God was disgusted by. And just because we're Presbyterians and Methodists, we're part of the mainline denomination, I know people say, well, yeah, but I don't have those words. I'm not a, I'm not an evangelist. Do you notice how little Peter actually says? You know, the song goes, if you cannot preach like Peter... You cannot pray like Paul. Peter doesn't preach. He says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit is drumming his fingernail, fingers like this, saying, let's move this along. I cannot wait to fall on the Gentiles. And you may find the same thing, that God is just as impatient and just as quick to zoom past your introduction. So don't worry about the words. So, what is it that bothers you? What is it that you're disgusted by. I should ask one more question. Do you think God doesn't care? I mean, does God really not care about the thing that someone does, the thing that they do with their body, just the, the food they eat, the, the, the questions like this? Does God not care? Well, did Jesus care about his followers? Did Jesus care that Matthew was a collaborator and a tax swindler? Did Jesus care that Peter was a coward? Did Jesus care that James and John were racist hotheads? Did Jesus care that Simon, Simon the Zealot, was a domestic terrorist? Of course God cares. But God knew that the way to reach those people was not to tell them, you're disgusting, stop doing that, but to engage with them and change them from the inside out. 
I read a story this week. I'm going to have to look it up. I, uh, he's in the, the current issue of Christianity Today. This is a story of a man named Casey Diaz. He was a Latino gangbanger and a shot caller, and he spent 12 years in solitary confinement um, once they caught him. And a little old lady walked by his cell once a week for a year and a half, and she said, Jesus has a use for me. And eventually Jesus found him right there in that disgusting cell and changed his life. But I want to give one more example. On April 3rd, 1968, Martin Luther King gave his last speech ever. It was sometimes called the I have been to the mountaintop speech. And he said that, he said that he would like to live a long time. Longevity has its place. But he says, I'm not fearing any man tonight. He said, because I have been to the mountain. And I've seen the promised land, and I know that we as a people will get to the promised land. That was the last public address that Martin Luther King made. The next morning he was assassinated. But do you know who he was speaking to that night? He was speaking to support a group of sanitation workers. He did a disgusting job and had poor safety conditions and low pay. Because Martin Luther King knew that God is not disgusted by the things that disgust us. God cares about the people who do disgusting things. So let's be like Peter. Let's go to that disgusting place. And if we can't be like Peter, then let's be like the Jewish believers who stopped objecting and praised God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... We give you thanks. We, we do face the omnivore's dilemma. We don't know what to eat, so we thank you that you have made us um, and equipped us with the ability to be disgusted by things that are bad for us. But Lord, help us to not confuse the things that are repugnant and nasty and gross with things that are unholy. Because Lord, we know that there is no such thing as a God-forsaken person. And so, oh God, we pray that you would help us to overcome our disgust and to learn what it is that makes you love everyone. We pray it to Christ our Lord. Amen.